Welcome to Learte dell'Arme, the Bolognese podcast where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition with the practitioners, translators, authors, and teachers working to bring the art back to life. Our guest today is Dori Koblenz. Dori, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, so we just kind of wanted to start out this interview a little bit by um, just kind of getting your background for our audience. So uh, if you could tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started in historical martial arts. Sure, yeah. So um, I'm a lecturer in technical communication at Georgia Tech now, and I took a little bit of a roundabout way to get there. I got my PhD from um, Emory University in um, English, and as part of that, my dissertation research, I looked at fencing manuals alongside um, Ben Jonson and Shakespeare's drama. So eventually I realized that fencing manuals are a form of technical communication, and I was a little bit more interested in the fencing manuals than in the Ben Jonson and the Shakespeare. So um, here I am. Um, now I get to work on fencing manuals full time. Um, so I'm doing a history of technical communication focus with my next project. I started fencing back in the early 2000s. There was a, um, an SCA group that met on my college campus. So I, you know, I, I dropped by a few times there. Um, I didn't really get a lot of traction with it then though. I tend to be pretty competitive and um, I was getting really frustrated because I didn't feel like I was getting better at fencing. Um, it was a little bit too unstructured for me. But then um, a few years later, we moved to the Bay Area. My husband and I, David, moved to the Bay Area. Um, and we had a bad roommate situation, so we had to get out of the house for longer periods of time. And then I started fencing in an SCA group out there. And, you know, I started to get a little bit more interested in at least um, socially, but then I didn't really feel like I owned it as a hobby until I began some Italian foil classes through a local adult education center. And that really, that kind of um, structure, um, the ideals, like the, um, the way that the material was presented, really helped me dig into fencing and own it as my own hobby instead of just something that I went to because um, other people were going. So um, that makes me very interested in the relationship between say form, like the form of a lesson, how formal a lesson is to structure and creativity, which is something that we've explored a lot. So that's, uh, can I jump in on this? This is a, she, really interesting here. So you said you did kind of your background was in English as technical communication or technical communication forms of literature, is that right? Right, so there's kind of a movement like, um, especially in the 80s and 90s, um, coming out of some of the, you know, the Marxist wing of um, criticism that began to be interested in non-elite forms of writing. So instead of just reading like Philip Sidney, instead of just reading Spencer and Shakespeare, right. let's look at technical manuals, let's look at other things. So part, one of my, um, the people who was very formative when I was learning at San Jose State um, came out of that tradition. But yeah, so it's, it's a literary tradition, but it's a literary tradition that specifically is interested in questions of class and therefore looks at um, um, technical communication artifacts. Okay, cool. That makes sense. That's, that's interesting, thanks. Yeah, that is. Um, so you've taken that, that same sort of mode and ethos and sort of morphed it into your own academic studies, but also incorporated your passion and your hobbies into it with some of the papers that you've written. Um, what is sort of combining those two things together been like? It's been really, really great. Like it's taken a long time to get there. So I spent probably the first five or 10 years of my career 
trying to sneak my ideas about literature in and make people think that um, they were very interesting before saying, um, oh, and look, we can see all of these ideas in fencing, and fencing can help us read these things, because there is still kind of a certain amount of um, snobbiness, I think, um, in literary studies, where um, you can't bring your hobbies to work, you know, um, or it, it makes you seem like a dilettante if you, if you are. So I had to um, learn about 16 different ways to um, explain or justify why, why fencing can help, help us think about literature. But I mean, it was, it was good for me overall. And I think now with my current position at Georgia Tech, I can teach, you know, rhetoric and ethics and technical communication. And I can do um, classes that focus on the history of rhetoric that let me just um, bring in those, those resources more. I just did a design analysis assignment for them where I sent them all to the Wichtenauer and I told them to look at all the, the 16th and 17th century manuals, pick one, and then write a design analysis based on it. And ideally to pick one that's not in a language that they could read. So they could really focus on things like margins and layout. And um, it was really, really interesting. I'll tell you, like, they didn't pick the ones that I thought they would. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's just an example of being able to, to do the two things Ooh. together. Um, and I like my research to build on my teaching and my teaching to build on my research as much as I can. So how do you... When you sort of apply these two things together and you're, you're incorporating fencing with looking at it from a technical manual perspective and especially from like a class perspective, do you see a difference like between somebody like um, Marazzo or Manciolino, for example, who um, or and somebody like Vigiani where the disparity between the people that they're writing for is pretty great, right? Like um, Marazzo's writing for Guido Rangone, uh, Manciolino, I guess, is, is writing more for the... Um, um, the Spanish court. So I guess he's writing for sort of a higher power, if you will. But, you know, when it comes to writing between for somebody who's like a duke or a count or maybe like a, a minor lord versus somebody who's writing for an emperor or... Well, well maybe, maybe we should actually back up on this because it sounds like Dory has a pretty great perspective on this. Who do you think the, these manuals were written for? Let's not put the cart in sure. front of the horse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, that's exactly where I wanted to go, Stephen. That's a really interesting question. And I think that's part of what is so... That is actually more what drew me to um, looking at the Bolognese tradition. Um, I mean, I, I have gone to a couple of classes. I love how it feels. It's fun, but it's not like in my... Um, it's not one of my personal like areas of expertise in terms of fencing, teaching fencing or um, fencing myself. But I love the, um, the tradition as a place for where early print technology intersects with um, schools. And it intersects with schools that do have um, this kind of range in who they're teaching. So it's not like, you know, Fabris who's off, you know, in the King of Sweden's court. And it's not like Sweetenham who's just kind of, you know, scrambling to um, get people in Portsmouth to buy his, um, his how-to book. Right. Um, so it's... it's it's this kind of mixed audience in terms of class. And I think one thing that is really, really interesting about print in, the, in that time period, in the early 16th century, um, especially like in Germany and um, northern, northern and central Italy, is um, the destabilization of audience. So with print technology, your audience just expands exponentially right. and you no longer have the same kind of control over who's gonna read it when they're going to read it, where they're going to read it. So even though I think um, it's clear that they're, they're kind of, um, they're appealing to like this patronage system too. So they really, they really are hoping that they'll be able to get some traction out of dedicating these books to these people. 
it seems clear that there is also, um, at least in Vigiani's case, it seemed clear that there's also this um, expectation of like the split audience. So there's um, the broader reader. There's going to be some income from people who are buying these books because apparently um, there are people who want to buy these books. Um, and I honestly just really admire these um, authors in this tradition because they're kind of going out on a limb here. You know, they're, they're really experimenting with this new print medium and um, hoping that somebody out there will buy it. So to me, like generically, in terms of genre, uh, the Bolognese texts are just kind of exciting and all over the place um, in some really interesting ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that's an interesting question because it's not like it doesn't matter who the works are dedicated to and it doesn't matter who the, the historical figures that they're kind of interlocuting um, with. I just think that part of what makes this tradition particularly interesting is the just the new awareness of um, how big and how weird your audience is as an author and um, the strategies that people are trying to figure out about how to deal with that um, in the early days of print before they really have some of these conventions um, that get a little bit, you know, by the time you're reading like, you know, Marcelli, right? You have much more conventional works. There's much more conventional use of tables of contents, of, you know, indices, of um, chapters, of subheadings. But in this early moment, you know, it can be all over the place. So one of the things I was I just wanted to kind of interject this in here and uh, on the technical communications front as well. Um, one of the things I always thought was really interesting about Manchelino is the fact that he in print lays down what is essentially a system mm -hmm. uh, that unifies body, time, motion and weapon. Uh, and it's very different than the work that he would have been familiar with that was available before of Monty, which is essentially like some dude's mm -hmm. bag of tricks, mm -hmm. right? So is it reasonable to say that Manchelino represents sort of a quantum leap in terms of systematically presenting information to to a, an unskilled fencer? Yeah, I think that's a great comparison. And I think that we don't study Manchiel, we as in like um, scholars of rhetoric and the history of rhetoric, we don't study Manchiolino and really we, we should be because of the way that he's experimenting. He's, I think I agree with you, he's, um, he's kind of undertaking this enterprise that's quite different than what we see with Monty. And the way that he is experimenting with um, the kind of intermingling of mm -hmm. um, his prose and the verse and the, the technical, right. like all those different stylistic registers. I love how he, continually has these um, apostrophes that talk about, you know, satyrs who are hunting nymphs, and it's talking right. about all of these different um, really poetic kind of um, expressions. But then, oh, no, I have to just write a boring old fencing manual, and you can't do that. <laughs> so he's, he's performing using this very high, like, sty high stylistic register to write this manual, and then as he's... Um, when he's, as he's actually writing the manual, then um, as he's writing it, and um, I think it's also mirroring what's happening with the assaulty, right? Because you're springing to out of out of distance before you really do those embellishments, before right. you really do those um, ornamental movements. So he's out of distance in a way when he's apostrophizing about satyrs and nymphs, and then you come back into measure, and then that's when you use uh, more of the, the traditional clear technical writing sort of um, stylistic register. So I think he's super interesting for how he plays with um, both like um, embodied movement and also with um, the verbals of what he's um, what he's trying to do with the manual, and he blends them in those ways. Cool. Yeah. So with with somebody like Morazzo, how do you think that like Morazzo became as popular as he did, given that he 
is very deliberate in the fact that he wasn't writing for a broader audience. How do you think that came about? I mean, I wonder how much of it was just um, the novelty, right? And how much of it is just he's he's beginning to, I mean, he's right at the beginning of some of that print audience. So maybe, um, and also he's writing it later in life, later in his career. So he maybe has like a wide personal network. Um, and also there's just kind of the vagaries of what gets preserved and what doesn't get preserved. So maybe there's, um, maybe there are other copies of other fencing treatises that were really well written that, um, that we don't have a hold of. But I, I wonder if it's some, some combination of having a, re a really broad network of um, students and ex-students um, kind of being the first on the scene or one of the first on the scene for um, these printed works that have broader distribution. And also, I think that there is just something that is kind of more fun and personal and warm in his style um, yeah. mm -hmm. that I think can really be appealing. The yeah, pictures really probably didn't hurt either. Yeah, pictures didn't hurt. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Poor <laughs> Manchiolino. I love Manchiolino, and yet um, his pictures are just kind of random. Poor guy. Yeah. <laughs> he needed he needed better um, he needed a better um, <laughs> print house, with better yeah, we, um, engravers, woodcutters. His, it's actually really interesting. His uh, his engraver. We're gonna we're gonna do a special episode at some point on his engraver because he is quite the character. He um, he was a very eccentric man. He had a, a dual personality for when he was doing business and then for when he wasn't doing business. He would go out and uh, basically just uh, go out and read these like uh, mythical allegories in the street and sort of like pontificate <laughs> about his ideas. On humanism and was like this very verbose character he even had a name for his character that he would assume Whoa. and um yeah he's he's he is quite the interesting fellow all right, all right. We're stay, we gotta stay focused here though yeah right? i can't wait to hear yeah. that one <laughs> all right how did the art of writing about fencing evolve over time yeah so i mean we've we've touched on this a little bit i think um Part of what we see is this movement from books that you're writing um, in order to remind your students of stuff that you already did in class, um, things that are more um, exemplary. So, okay, let's remember we're going to have this guard name that, um, you know, the unicorn guard, and it helps you remember what it's supposed to look like. And the book is also a way to remember that and reinforce it. I think I'm not within our tradition, and I'm not like a Meyer scholar by any means, but Meyer is just very, very intentional um, about the way that he approaches print in some ways that I think show how the, the discipline is changing um, through time and changing as the readership changes because Meyer talks about how people need to have things organized. And so print becomes this way to organize ideas and, and that's like the, the chief benefit of that, um, of that medium. But I think that you have this movement from this more exemplary model where you're remembering things, you're, go, you're moving through postures to more of this um, abstract and mathematical model and that we see beginning with Agrippa and then um, moving into like 17th, 18th centuries. And part of this is, I think, because fencing as a discipline, fencing as a, or being a fencing master as a profession is reinventing itself in some ways. So by appealing to underlying mathematical prin principles, then you're saying, hey, this is actually something you could study at a university. This is a, this is a, a kind of knowledge that is um, classy knowledge, you know, it's not like, right. it's not like, um, you know, how to bake a loaf of bread, right? It's uh, not like, it, this, this is a kind of knowledge that's really elevated. So I think there's a, a, a push among many of the authors in the tradition to make the, to elevate the, um, the discipline of fencing with the way that they're writing. And that coupled with 
rising literacy, that with um, rising um, usage of print technology, the broader audience that they can appeal to really begins to change um, who can access these books. And of course, you know, pretty much no one is saying, have this book, you can, well, Sweet Num, but you know, Sweet Num's just kind of an opportunist. Um, but people are not saying, you know, take this book and um, learn to fence just from this book. So there's not really that expectation. You're still right. like learning with, with a master. But it does seem like more of the cognitive load, more of the organizational load as time goes on is um, moved into language as opposed to being something that is um, maybe more nonverbal. Like, you know, when you're teaching a lesson, you might check your student's closure. If you aren't there to check your student's closure, then you suddenly need a paragraph of text explaining what closure is and, you know, the angle they should be at. So some of this pedagogical work gets shifted um, into the linguistic realm instead of the non-linguistic realm and then written down and then distributed to a much broader audience, which changes the way that people um, approach fencing. I will say though, like I, I said that about um, audience, but I think it is interesting, like with the Degrassi translation, um, that makes a claim that is nowhere in Degrassi. The subtitle to Degrassi, what is it? It's like this, it's like this great um, system of fencing where you can learn it just from this book with nobody, with nobody else helping you. Um, effectively in the subtitle, and that claim is not not in the Italian. So maybe maybe <laughs> it's good enough for the English, though. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you can learn how to fence from a book. I don't know. <laughs> so then, you would say then that the general trend over time was to go from something that was more concrete and learned through motion to something that was more abstract and kind of learned through reason. I think that, I mean, I think that is how they would, I think that is how fencing um, folks would have seen their enterprise in the 18th and 19th century. I think one thing that's actually really interesting about fencing, though, is that it, um, it traverses this Cartesian split and it traverses this kind of um, split between things that you know and things that you do um, in some really interesting ways. So I think there's, there's also some subversion going on there between um, linguistic and non-linguistic knowledge. So I think, I mean, I think like, especially like in the Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment, that would be like a pretty, um, a pretty accurate way of describing what somebody's trying to do with, um, with the pedagogy, with fencing, with um, appealing to reason, because that is academically what is, you know, what's going to get your discipline the most prestige. Right. Um, in your town. It's like we are, we are, we are reason-based. Um, I think now that is a little bit less, you know, because we're, we're postmoderns now. Um, it's a little bit less of a, of a, um, a sexy appeal, right? Um, so I don't know if I would necessarily say I think that's what everyone is doing, but I think that there, there is this kind of interesting um, story of status um, over the last 400, 500 years with um, the discipline as a whole as a profession really starts to imagine itself as something that's bigger than like a school or two in one town. Um, and I think that the appeal to reason is part of that larger trend. Cool. Seems like a, you want to get the next question? Yeah. So uh, what do you think made people change how they fence or thought about fencing um, as it, as it evolved? Um, we see the sort of the progressive push, but from, the early 16th century and, and into the 17th century where we see changing postures. We, have, we see a lot of uh, the, the tactical paradigms start to change. Um, and 
obviously the from a written portion we see a change as well. Um, what do you think sort of drove that? Well, I mean, I think there's I think there's a few things. So, I mean, I think you could you could take kind of a, a Foucauldian approach to this, um, like in Discipline and Punish, Foucault's talking about like a later time period, but he talks about this movement um, from a more exemplary system of teaching to one that is more based on really intense, minute classification. And I think that we, we do in general, um, probably a little bit earlier than what he's talking about, see that, um, that movement from the exemplary to that um, really um, like classical fencing, right? It's about classifying things. It's about trying to be very specific in the way that you, um, you talk about um, actions that you can take, the reasons why you're doing things. So I think that we have that general movement um, historically, that kind of epistemic shift historically. At the same time, we have um, changes in invention. So I mentioned already the um, printing press, so that that change, that um, new invention also begets this whole like change in rhetorical invention and inventive practice. Um, so with rhetorical invention, you know, it's less about discovering something new, like a scientific discovery, and more about um, arrangements. So rum invention is the first of Cicero's five canons of rhetoric. So with rhetorical, with the changes to um, technological invention, we see changes to rhetorical invention which also leads to like these different sorts of approaches to pedagogy and it really makes people it makes people who are um, trying to um, it, it promotes failure and invention building on top of the failure in some new and interesting ways I think so something like oh go ahead oh I was gonna say I was gonna kind of edge into a little bit of conspiracy theory here <laughs> yeah so um, I wanted to uh, you know, it's I, I find it interesting with with something like the Anonimo Bolognese. We have something that I think no editor early on with an early iteration of the printing press probably would have touched um, <laughs> because of the the sheer amount of information that he provides. So, do you think that in some way there was even an aspect of limitation from the early printing press and like what we see with Manchiolino, where it's very condensed? You know, it's even like a smaller book. Um, and that probably helped to keep printing costs down and things like that, where as printing became more efficient, we see an evolution and a growth. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. And I think that with um, with the press becoming more efficient, you have less room, like engraving technology also gets better, right? Um, and so yeah. you have less room and people still complain about it all the time. They complain about their engravers. They're like, don't look at the, don't look at these engravings. They're terrible. Just read the text. But they, they actually get better, they get more accurate, and you actually do have more tools to try and get around the problem of um, imparting something that is time-based and motion-based through this, um, this textual medium, which is not at all. So something that I was thinking about when you were, when you were talking about the last point, Dory, was um, you know, the trend towards what you might call intense micro-classification. Um, wouldn't that be more suitable for when you're learning a specific weapon, whereas in the case of the Bolognese art, for example, uh, the truths were supposed to be were supposed to basically hold across a broad variety of weapons because you didn't know exactly what you would have to hand or what the situation would be 
Whereas in like something like a modern fencing or modern classical fencing, you have you pretty much know what the environment is going to be, and you can kind of make um, rules or you know you can study your fencing in such a way that it promotes that. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And in some ways, it's a little bit hard to answer because we just don't have the same detailed kind of information coming out of um, sure. you know, 16th yeah. century Bologna that we do out of 19th century Germany, you know, right. 20th Absolutely. century Italy. Um, I do think that there's there are the three fundamentals of fencing, tempo, modo, misura. I think classical fencing tends to drill down, or this is a little bit of a, an oversimplification, but when I talk about like um, hyper-classification, I'm really thinking about modo or technique. So when we can move a lot of things into the linguistic realm, that gives us flexibility to describe some very complicated right. things in some very specific ways um, oriented around um, a very specific ideal. So in some ways, the printing press enables this sort of um, linguistic offloading that then enables, I think, some more complexity in the kinds of actions that are being taught. So I would say that, yes, there probably is more of a drilling down into the modo, into the technique um, with some of what's going on. Um, I can't really speak to say like modern Olympic style fencing. I'm not really um, well versed in those kinds of training situations, but at least with um, a lot of the more modern classical sorts of um, pedagogical approaches, that's something that's really emphasized. Whereas what I see at least, um, and I'm, oops. Whoa. <laughs> Speaking of time and motion, I just um, locked my chair into a oh. screen, but. <laughs> Good save. Full awareness. Yeah. Yeah. Quick That's reflexes there. There we go. I caught Good it. Good use of tempo. <laughs> yeah. No, but I think with, with the Bolognese text, to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, because I don't, like I said, I don't really practice the, um, the Bolognese, um, not arts yet. as much <laughs> but it seems like there is like this real emphasis on footwork that you don't see as explicitly anywhere else in the tradition that early and really anywhere else um right for um a pretty long time um in the rest of the italian language right. tradition and so that emphasis on footwork makes me think that they're drilling more into the um, the mesura the tempo um of these actions so i don't know if that's a fair generalization to you but that's that's kind of my immediate response yeah i think so i uh, from my overall pedagogical view of, of the Bolognese system is definitely that, um, yeah, and, and Michelino kind of mentions this um, when he talks about tempo. Uh, he gives, I, I've always kind of wondered about his discussion on tempo and, and its simplicity where he's talking about, you know, the moment your opponent's sword passes past your person, that's the moment to strike kind of thing. It's just, it just seems way too simplified. You look at somebody like mm. Delagoke and it's a lot more complex. He gives you five tempos. You look later and, and you get uh, a really great explanation of tempo from a lot of different people. But um, in looking at the simplicity of it, I think that uh, there is a, a level of, um, sort of forward and offline footwork hmm. overall in the Bolognese system where uh, if you if you take another section from uh, Manchilino's discussion on his his basic principles when he talks tells you to basically always defend going forward hmm. um, and that that what I think that that sets up is a lot of um, sort of a push into mezzospada and when your opponent denies you measure 
then you get the tempo of their foot and, and the tempo of their step. And you, you start to unlock all of Dalagoke's tempos, and then you can exploit those things and so on and so forth. So I, I do see where like their focus on footwork and their focus on sort of moving forward in that progression or offline to make parries, to change the line as you're making parries really kind of comes into play. Do you feel like that? Do you feel like space and place are more important organizational principles with the um, the Bolognese authors than tempo? Because I feel like you can make a case that in some of the German and English um, fencing traditions, they really tend to talk a lot about positionality, um, so your space, um, almost more than they would talk about timing and timing patterns. Yeah, I think angle is really the, the key to unlocking Bolognese swordsmanship. Uh, most of the action seems to be about either moving away from the bind to create that angle or moving in to use your body to gain the control of their sword that way. Hmm. And tempo seems to be more, more like uh, just do the thing that's the fastest. Because uh, mm. a lot of it is going to be used, it's meant more to be used with a, a an offhand weapon, so that changes the timing a lot. Yeah, I, and I think like with the later rapier tradition, you see tempo much more as a way to, to talk about opportunity in right. these really nuanced ways. And it seems like what you're saying is that space and place and positionality become more of a way to talk about opportunity with um, the Bolognese text. Is that fair? Yeah, and like yeah, kind I of think the, so. yeah, and the net goal is sort of assumed that you're going to cross their weapon and then find some way to kick them in the balls or pull, <laughs> like rip the weapon Just from like their today, head. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So well, I you know, my instead, <laughs> <laughs> instead of all this, like find that little moment to stab them, which is a little bit dicey. The safest way is just if they don't have their weapons, then you and you do, then you won, and now you can really safely take them out. <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it's interesting, right? Because the Anonimo goes into this in, in quite a bit of depth when he talks about the crossings. And when he talks about Strata in particular, he talks about how you never want your sword to be found unless it's greatly to your advantage, right? right. And I, I think of I think of like later rapier sources, or earlier rapier sources, but, you know, later as in from the 16th century context, later. Um, and the idea of sort of a obligation, right? Mm. And a lot of a lot of the tactical a lot of the tactics from there being built off the idea of obliging somebody to do something like a cavazione and you're taking advantage of that tempo that they're giving you from that obligation that you've given them um, when you use again your angulation or a find or something along those lines to to sort of force them into that and we still see um you know uh, early example of that with somebody like manciolino where he gives you know his strindre of space and it is he is limiting through tempo he is limiting the potential actions that your opponent can give right because with their sword low and a low guard if they were to try to give a cut they're going to give you a big tempo by raising their hand and you can take advantage of that because you are creating that tempo so it's there it's definitely there and like Morazzo talks about this too um there's a I'm, I'm forgetting the italian right now but there's the concept of rising and falling um that uh Morazzo talks a lot about where you just sit in Porta de Ferro and you basically do a false edge parry and a mandrito back down constantly. And he does oh yeah, El Tira. Yeah, El Tira. Yeah, that's exactly. it. Yeah, and so he does it with the. He doesn't just do it with um, sword and dagger. He, I think he does it with sword and buckler as he well. He does it with everything. Um, yeah. Sword and small buckler. He, he really yeah. incorporates it in a lot of different things. But uh, he 
evolves that idea later on in book three, and we can talk about why Marazzo is a terrible writer. <laughs> in book three, he actually clarifies the whole intention of this entire thing. Oh, by and, the way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I keep telling you to do this thing, but this is actually how you do it. So you know, this he, is probably a great time to segue into the next question then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'll finish this point, and then we can, we yeah. can kind of move on. But um, it, it's interesting because what, what Moranto ends up telling you is that you should always be attacking into your opponent's attack. And that's something that, that Manchialino talks about too. And, you know, that fits very well with at least my reading of what we see with Endes in the German tradition. And mm. it's not too dissimilar from what you see for, with Endes. So I, I, I think that there, there are definitely correlations there. But when you look at an author like Vigiani, I mean, Vigiani goes through great lengths to describe what tempo is. And I think the principles are are there. Um, it's just, I don't, you're right, from, from a literary perspective, they don't quite give it as much focus, but it, it just exists almost as if it's like, it's a known that you should already be familiar with as you're kind of like getting into the material. Hmm. So, now that we have your background, from a literary perspective, rated from one to five, who are the best <laughs> and worst authors among the extant sources we have? Okay, and here's a cheat. We can already know that Morozzo is going to be the worst. <laughs> so you don't have to include him. You know, I thought about this question. It was, I'm, I'm, probably, I'm probably the wrong person to ask this to because I'm so drawn to like abject failure um, on the part of authors <laughs> because I'm so interested, I'm so interested in an audience. So I, I just wrote this whole monograph about all the plays with bad plots. So, you know, Titus Andronicus or As You Like It, they both have notoriously bad, you know, bad I'm doing scare quotes, which people can't see because it's a podcast. But anyway, they have these these bad plots, like nothing happens, nothing happens for these entire three acts, and then bam, everything happens all at once. Or nothing happens, nothing happens, mm, okay, people get married, right? So they're, I'm really drawn to things where there seems like a mismatch between what um, what the the goal was and how I as the audience receive it. Because sometimes, you know, the the author is just not doing a good job, and that's why right. that's why there's that's why they they're presenting something to me, and I don't like it. But sometimes they're presenting something to me because, or they're presenting something to a, a different imagined audience, and I'm not in that audience. And then um, it looks like a failure to me, but maybe by some standards, it's not really a failure. Um, so when I was thinking about this, um, I was trying to think about all the, like the bad bad fencing manuals. But in each case, I keep thinking about. Um, interesting things that they are specifically doing even while they're not doing exactly what i want them to do right um i mean i think um i think you guys mentioned on a previous podcast that you think moritza really needs um an editor because oh, of, like the hella. Very, very, yeah yeah so, I mean, I, <laughs> there is certainly like on the level of just facility with written language um <laughs> people who are better than other people um but you know we could talk, we're talking about um, Vigiani, and he's, I think, one of the, I don't know, like, tragic comic prime examples I can mm. think of for this, because people liked him enough, you know, during the, the 16th century, late 16th century, so there's a couple of printings of the book, and it seems like there's all of this work that went into making the book reader-friendly. So there's like 30 pages of that coperta in the beginning right. where it's just going through like every single thing, but it's utterly useless. Like it's not really a very right. good, um, it's right. not a very useful meta text, right? right. Um, and I don't, that's not in the manuscript edition. So that's something that, that was something in the, um, the print edition that got added. 
But it is just kind of like a little bit, you know, sad to me to see how Vigiani is going through and he's adding all these marginal glosses and he wants to really make sure they understand the main point of what Rodomonte and Bocca di Ferro are talking about. Um, and for today's audience, I mean, have you ever really read somebody who likes books one and two of Vigiani? No. Does anybody no. bother to read them? No, they don't, they don't like yeah. them. Um, but they're actually great books and they're super important because what he's doing there to go back to um, a point that Joshua just made is they are establishing the um, the role they're establishing this domain of knowledge around time and motion uh, and yeah, okay. war and um so through this sort of like discussion in the first couple of books about um, letters and arms or soldiers and scholars you know etc cetera, etc cetera. it's really arguing that there is this this domain of knowledge around timing and around motion and deception that is really laid claim to by both disciplines by the sword and the oh, pen okay. um, and that so he's sense. there's this whole like kind of um epistemological framework that he is developing that um to me at least is something that we should we should pay attention to or we should know about because it's going into these um, questions about, these theoretical questions about um, time and motion and deception. And I don't think that those are tangential to fencing theory and practice. I think that they're, they're integral to the system in some way, and they should be integral to how we approach um, historical fencing instruction. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So I guess it's, Maybe it's a little bit less interesting to us because we have an entirely kind of different and frankly better idea of time than of how to conceive of time than they do. So it's like somebody's trying to sell us on astrology or something like that. No, I mean, I don't, I don't think that's where I was going because I think too, like one thing that's very interesting about these texts is they're at this pre-Cartesian moment, but they're thinking really, really hard about the relationship between um, you know, your body and your mind, and right. they're doing it in these ways that are not really inflected by what's now, frankly, kind of a discredited um, um, strong dualism. So people today who are working in cognitive science are not Cartesians, you know, they're, they're, not, um, they're not thinking in those same frameworks. They're actually closer, if you think about like, you know, active externalism, or if you think right. about you know, Chalmers and Clark, and these people who are working cognitive science today, they're probably a little bit closer to some of these um, fencing authors than they are to somebody like Descartes. And isn't it a shame that we don't have Descartes' fencing treatise? I would have loved to see like how um, how Cartesian oh, that God, would have been. been. Awful! I couldn't get to that guy in philosophy <laughs> one. It was I can't imagine a fencing treatise by that guy. Mm. Anyway, sorry. So uh, we, we put you down then as Vigiani as number one in your book. Yeah, everybody else is just terrible. Okay. No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, I love I love Degrassi for thinking about judgment, and I love I actually love Capoferro for thinking about disciplinary divisions like around art and science, and I also love him for that kind of temporal complexity because the way that he sets up these plates, it kind of starts where I would end a lesson. So I would end a lesson in um, you know contratempo or in you know. Um, faints in time and that's really like where his plates are starting so there's just so much like condensed into each of those plates right. that I think is really fascinating so I love the richness there um, and I love um, Fabris for the way that he thinks about 
um, motion and just for the organization, which is just, you know, better, I think, um, than a lot of the other early 17th century manuals that we have. I guess I was just having, a, I was having trouble thinking of like a manual that I've read and I just thought, oh, I wish this hadn't been written. This is terrible. This writing is so bad. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, do you want to move, should we move on to the next one, Joshua? Yeah, sure. We can. All right. This one's a softball. All right, so you were recently in Bologna, and sadly, neither Joshua nor I have had the chance to go there. So tell us about it. What's it like being there? Oh, Bologna is really, really a great city. So it's really centrally located. You can, like, do a day trip to Milan or to Rome from Bologna. It's, um, it's got this, it's very affordable, I think, in comparison to some of the other um, cities, but it's got this very compact sort of historical downtown center and of course the food is just amazing. Um, I was there just for a brief time. There was a conference there for the American Association of Teachers of Italian Studies. So I was there at that conference and then while I was there I got a couple days to go to the um, Archivio di Stato which is where they uh -huh. keep all of their yep. um, city documents. Um, so I highly recommend the city. Do you want me to talk some about, about the um, Archivio di Stato? Yeah, yes, that, that sounds awesome. Yeah, so it's very intimidating, honestly. So it's not like, you know, if you've been to the Newbury and you just walk in and they're so friendly and they're like, you know, here's um, here's the catalog, here's all the stuff that we have and you can search by keyword and it's pretty um, pretty accessible. They're, they're very professional at the Archivio di Stato in Bologna. Um, they're very professional. Um, they're very, very organized. So I had this kind of stereotype in my head like, oh, okay, I'm going to go there and it's going to be so disorganized. I'm going to have to, you know, try to find everything. But the, the amount of information that's there is just profound. So I think probably if you want to visit it, the best way to go about it is to find somebody else who has been there and has written about it and who has looked at a specific um, busta, a specific like um, collection, uh -huh. um, and then see where that is. Because when you go there and you, you, ask, you can ask for like a few items a day, they have a limit on how many things a day you have. So if you're only there for a few days, it can be kind of heartbreaking because you might have like asked for um, the wrong busta. Or, you, you know, you start looking at it and it quickly becomes mm. clear. That, and that's like, okay, that's one of your, that's one of your three or four oh, no. of your day. Yeah. Oh, um, just got to give them a couple ducats under the table, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I should have tried that. No, I but I think um, they have, well, you have to be on site to use it, but they have a computer that has um, an index of all the births. So one thing I was trying to track down was some more verification about when Vigiani was born, um, because we have this one reference in that like 1901 newspaper article that's very precise. It's like, oh yeah, Vigiani, who was born on the 1st of December, 1517 or whatever it was. And that's the only place I've been able to find that kind of... Um, biographical information about Vigiani. Um, oh, and pro tip, they spell it Bizani in a lot of these documents too, like the older ones. They have like a soft, um, it's like that soft pronunciation. I think it's more Venetian. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so that's, you have to like look for all the different ways you can spell oh, God. his name. Yeah. So it's anyway. Like going through Sanudo. <laughs> yeah. You can look through this index and you can see all the records of like people who were born when they were born. And then there's like a, a reference code and then if you have more time, you could use the reference code to get more documents. But I mean, it's, it's really well organized. It takes a lot of preparation to go. Um, and it's, it's really, I mean, it's worth going to. I think um, I was looking at the, um, the Bocca di Ferro family um, collection. 
And that was that was super interesting. A lot of illegitimate children, like so many legitimation documents, oh. and they're all like you yeah. know little novels. But um, I thought it was interesting to put some real like um, flesh and bones on these characters who um, can kind of come across. I think when you're reading Vigiani, as perhaps being a little bit more, at least if you're reading in the twentieth, twenty first century perspective, as being more um, archetypical because it's like. Boca di Ferro, it's Iron Mouse, the philosopher, and it's right. like from Orlando Furioso. So it seems like they could be like archetypes, but actually like these families just have such deep roots there. I was really just, um, I was kind of blown away by the, the hyper-localism of the right. book after, after I was in Bologna, like, okay, wow, these are, this is a, it's talking about these really big themes, but it's really a very local um, story. Oh, that's really interesting. That's Can you expand really on that a little bit? Give us a little bit of a background on on uh, his muses and and how they kind of relate to Vigiani and the city of Bologna. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I'm probably not going to be able to talk about, say, like all the um, the condottieri and all the historical biographical details of folks. Um, my my emphasis is much more on design and rhetoric. So when I go and I look at these records, I'm I'm interested in the the bibliographical material, but really only as it supports. Um, some of the other work that I'm doing on the history of technical communication. Um, but I do think that the, um, yeah, I think, like I said, the, the prominence of the family is you can really see just physically suit through the size of the collections that are represented there. And so that's something that really, um, that really startled me. It was really very interesting to me. But I know that you guys have done a lot more work on these networks of um, emperors and kings and princes and condottieri. Um, so you could probably speak more than I could to how those um, how those figures all interconnect. Yeah, sometimes it gets a little chaotic. <laughs> yeah, they're a... all related. That's the weirdest part. <laughs> like, oh yeah. well, this guy's a second cousin. Is that really considered related at this time? You know, it's uh, it's interesting. Yeah. 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 Right now, our focus but... is on this duel between Hugo Popoli and Guido Rangoni, who are, I think, second or third cousins. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They all they all seem to to connect in some way, but. So yeah. Angel... So oh, go ahead. One of the things that so you kind of alluded to this, but I, I think I remember this in our conversation when we were at uh, Surfo together and we had, we were talking about Vigiani. So they, they actually compile everything by family. Is that correct? In mm -hmm. terms of like how they set up their, their organization? Well, I mean, it, it can vary. So the one that I was interested in, there was like a collection that was donated by the Bonzi family. And so it's under Bonzi. And then within Bonzi, you have like Carte that, that specify the keyword or the family like within that so kind of okay yeah that's interesting cool oh we gotta yeah. get there just gotta figure out how to talk the missus into hey honey you know you want to spend a vacation in italy while i'm off at the library right <laughs> <laughs> well i mean that's the great thing about bologna she could go wherever she wants um that's quick right. train ride you there know you go. spend some time in venice pretty easy yeah i'll have to work on her on that yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. So where are we at now? All right. So questions. Now we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about Vigiani. Um, so you're you're currently working on on Vigiani, and he's kind of um, you know, the muse that inspired uh, Stephen and I's recent forays into studying the history of the Italian wars and really why this whole thing with Guido Rangoni and Ugo Papoli started. Um, 
sort of uh, Vigiani lauding them with the, his his praises as being you know tremendous fencers and all the the names that he ties to the the city of Bologna. So much um, name dropping. So much. Name yeah, dropping. yeah. What and you know through it, it's been insightful because we have found the connections that link all these people into the city of Bologna, which has you know been really really fascinating. Um, but what what can you share with us about the life of uh, Angelo Vigiani that you've kind of discovered and, and what about him as a writer uh, has kind of captured your imagination? Yeah, so um, like I said, like the biographical details are still fairly sparse for him. I do have this one reference that talks about the one thing it says about Vigiani is a very specific birth date, which it doesn't give to anybody else in the article. The article is from 1901, and it's about like all of, it's about the history of fencing in Bologna um, by somebody who's arguing that um, that Bologna. Um, really gave birth to Italian fencing. It didn't come from Spain, because I guess like in the early 1900s, they thought maybe that it came from Spain and they didn't have that same kind of um, understanding of the tradition. So anyway, this is a journalist who's writing in honor of a fence, big fencing event that's happening in Bologna um, at the turn of the century. And he's like, okay, well, here is, um, this is where Marozzo lived and this is what we know about. And it's just really, it's like one page, you know, um, really brief. And then the one thing he mentions about Vigiani is, um, he was born to um, Michel, and it was on this date. So it was just, and that he was he was a successor of Marozzo. Um, so cool. It's, it's very it's very sparse. Um, but I think, in terms of what inspires me about Vigiani, I think that just his his sheer chutzpah inspires me. I mean, mm-hmm. here's somebody who's um, if it's true that he's born in 1517, he's not really all that old in 1551, 1550, 1549, whenever he's writing um, yes. Los Germo. And he's, um, he's making these huge claims about how knowledge works and how disciplines should be organized and um, why fencing is a way to think about these larger questions and these just kind of big epistemological things. And he really, before Agrippa, um, derives this really brilliant guard system that I actually kind of like, I, I kind of wish like that had stuck instead of Agrippa's, honestly, because now, you know, when we're teaching like rapier, it's like, all right, have your hand position in second, or be in a guard. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> in second, but not quite in second. Yeah. It's, uh... So I mean, I think in short, it's like, because I'm, you know, I'm, my current project is on invention, and I think Vigiani is just an incredible um, inventor, and he's really inventing in this new um, medium. And I think he gets less credit than he deserves because it's of the posthumous publication. So in some ways, you know, even um, William Gogler does this in History of Fencing. Um, Gogler talks about Vigiani as being somebody who wrote in 1575, but he wasn't, right. you know. Right. He was somebody who was writing a quarter century before then, which places him before Agrippa. And um, I think some of the, some of the um, credit that Agrippa gets for being first um, in certain areas really should go to Vigiani, but he's, he's under-recognized. Yeah, I agree. And he died so young. He's yeah. 34, I think. Which yeah, is, I mean, if, if that birth date is right, I, have you found, like, anything else that, like, validates that 1517 date? No. Yeah, no. that's going to be my next trip, because I got the index. I know, like, what I need to look at now, but I, I just need to go back and actually look at it. Or let me know if you go, and I'll send it to you, and you can, like, look it up and share it with me. So what do you think? Do you think he died trying to use his perfect scaremo and finding out that it doesn't work in a real sword fight? <laughs> so he started no. to do the thing and 
Somebody <laughs> drops a Tramazoni right onto his sword and nails no. it. <laughs> I mean, he, he, he was very adamant about fencing with sharp swords. Yeah. And maybe one, one of the people he is sucking up to just got tired of like how long the compliment was going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. always kind of makes me think of somebody who's really into Bitcoin. He's like the, the equivalent <laughs> to like, you should sell all your possessions and, and transfer everything into Bitcoin. I first started working with Vigiani maybe like 15 years or so ago. I went to this language school in um, Verona that was um, fantastic. And I had an individual teacher, and she would work with me through the, um, the manuscript. Um, this wow, is, awesome. Yeah, it was so cool. But she was just laughing her head off because it's just like, she's like, oh, my God, Rodamonte, you're still going on about Boca di Ferro? This is... <laughs> <laughs> you can barely get through pages because it's just so funny like how obsequious, how yeah. things are yeah. yeah yeah it's obsequious I don't know like don't don't take this the wrong way but it also feels very like Bolognese to me because you have these really like long ornamental right. things going on linguistically right. and you kind of also have that I feel like in your art at least when you're right. out of distance like clearly there's intentionality and everything but when you're out of distance on a level I would say that a Bolognese author will have you doing more Fancy things. Well, yeah, you gotta uh, impress the chicks yeah. when you're out of a distance. Make sure that they're all watching you, and then you go in. Well, I mean, I think it's a different model of masculinity, right? Because it used to be that I think with these earlier texts, you see masculinity asserted via spatial control, and the spatial control is exerted with some of these like big movements and yeah. these kind of intimidating movements and taking up room. Right. When you get to Capoeira, I think there's more of an aesthetic of um, minimalism and more of an aesthetic of like each movement needs to be very carefully. Um, planned and used like he's really really particular right. about um, about how stillness can be a tempo or how when you move can be a tempo like he's really particular about when and where you move I think in a way that probably aligns a little bit more with how we how we would teach um, within more of like that classical paradigm like we really right. want the motions to be intentional and it's not like not like the earlier models weren't intentional, but I think that there's a there's just kind of a different um, cultural aesthetic going on there too. Could totally be the case, yeah. Sweet, yeah. I I think you know I, one of the things that uh, and, and you and I had talked about this before, but uh, we can highlight it now. But I, I think the the beautiful thing, and you you definitely touched on this, is that you know, especially with the changes that that Vigiani made. Um, he, he becomes almost like the Rosetta Stone of the Bolognese system in that he clarifies things that mm. were, uh, especially from somebody like Morazzo in particular, where you might have something that is seen as um, jargon to somebody looking back on the text itself, right? Like, it's hard to understand a lot of jargon. Um, why a specific guard is named the way that it is and what the context is that actually illuminates the nature of the guard itself, where Vigiani just gives you the nature of the guard with, you know, Porta de Ferro being, you know, Gordia defen Defensiva Perfecta. And the whole idea is it's that it's the perf perfect defensive guard. And you can get that through nuance in Marazzo and Manciolino. But Vigiani just says, forget the nuance, forget having to explain it to somebody. Let's just name it what it is. Um, and yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think that's enough. That also brings me back to the question of audience. So is he like really good at analyzing his audience or is he absolutely terrible at analyzing his audience? <laughs> because um, I think with Manciolino and Mozzo, maybe we're not their audience, but also maybe they, they just aren't good at understanding 
what their reader needs to hear from them to be able to um, make sense of the system. And with Vigiani, I think it kind of fits in with his whole just sort of um, like, yeah, just like the chutzpah that he, um, that he demonstrates through um, these kind of crazy inventions, these crazy like linguistic inventions and the innovations that he's making. I mean, he doesn't care. I'll be like, this is what this is, you know, this is what this yeah. is. Um, you, so there's, there's something that's kind of bold about that, I feel like. Do you think that he was doing that because he was writing for a foreign audience? Do you think that he was writing for the court of the Holy Roman Emperor? I don't know. That's an interesting question. I hadn't really thought about that before, but that could, that could make a lot of sense, right? Because then he would need to be much more um, descriptive. And also that would, that would be kind of a nice place for that sort of um, three-way um, conversation. Because I think we see people, the dialogue format becomes really, really popular later in the 16th century. He's very early with it. And usually there's two people, right? So in Saviolo, you've got what, like Luke and um, Saviolo talking to each other. But you don't usually have like that kind of three-way conversation. Right. And in some ways it reminds me of Castiglione, because Castiglione was also working in a very popular conventional format of having these this sort of like platonic dialogue but he treats it more like a mask or a play because he brings in like something like 32 speaking parts and so he's doing this really interesting formal experimentation with having lots of different voices in there and i think in some ways Vigiani's also experimenting with that dialogue format by introducing like that third person and that can make a lot of sense if he's trying to appeal to a foreign audience um, as you mentioned it's a way to clarification and also to ornament it yeah, I, I'm I'm onto a uh, an interesting connection that I'm I'm trying to make um, where uh, the engraver of Marazzo's uh, 1568 edition mentions that uh, Emilio Merescotti, um, or I think he says Emilio Merescotto, um, was one of uh, Marazzo's students, and um, the Merescotti at this time actually end up um i think it's either emilio or his brother end up marrying a um a, a daughter of um maximilian or not maximilian excuse me um of uh charles v an illegitimate daughter of charles mm. v and i'm, I'm Some social climbing for them there it is yeah well yeah it is for sure but there's also the connection with the farnese where they had also married into um into that family and the Farnese family in um, 1508 um, after 1506 when the Bentivoglio were kicked out of Bologna um, usually there was sort of a sponsor family of the University of Bologna and in 1508 the sponsorship is basically opened to uh, the general uh, you know uh, popular if you want uh, and the Mariscotti the Malvezzi and uh, the, the Farnese are the ones who are kind of vying for control of the university. And the Farnese are the ones that actually end up um, getting control of the university. So I don't know if there's some sort of a tie there that kind of like drives that link up where perhaps he had some sort of relation to somebody who had that connection in the court and therefore that was sort of his means of getting it there. Um, but I don't know. I was, I was kind of touching on a few different threads. Um, and it was It was pretty interesting. But when I was looking for this, it was because I went back and I was looking through, uh, there's a, a really interesting uh, article that was written in, in 1900, I think, where uh, a gentleman 
ended up going back and creating a list of all of the notable instructors at the University of Bologna. Um, and I was like, okay, well, this is interesting because there's always kind of been this like theory that in some way the Bolognese fencing tradition has been related to, um, you know, the university in some way. And the, the way that the university was structured is that it was actually operated less like how we see a conventional university today and more of a sort of a mentorship program where you would have, like, you, you could choose a trade and then you would basically go and work with tradespeople in that profession and you would earn a degree. Um, and so it was, it was deeply rooted with the guilds and the... Um, I think it's the note is I, I'm probably probably mispronouncing that, but it was like the four um, main guild structures of, of Bologna where you had, I think it was um, law, wool merchants, silk merchants, and um, something else that I'm forgetting. But th those are basically like the four key guilds. And if you were in one of those four key guilds or one of those sort of like higher arts, if you will, then you were considered nobility within the city of Bologna. But th the reason I, I, I bring that up is because I was looking for different names of Bolognese masters. And I found Filippo Dardi um, mm. listed. And I found you were mentioning that um, the Bolognese system has kind of, or at least there's always been this argument around whether or not uh, Bolognese fencing was influenced by Spanish fencing. Um, and in this, um, I, f I found another article that was written about Filippo Dardi, where this guy basically says that all the scholarship that's ever been done that links Filippo Dardi to being Spanish is completely wrong and hmm. brings up a whole bunch of records of the Dardi family existing within Bologna. Uh, so I thought that was actually super interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting. And the, now that you mention that, the newspaper article that I was telling you about also talks some about the um, the university system there. Now I have to like go back and read that and see um, see what the point of <laughs> see what the point <laughs> of that was. Um, but it, it goes into detail about how oh I think it was Darty talking about how he um, negotiated to um, have a position as a reader and to draw the salary from the University right. of Bologna. Yep, and he was there for for quite a while. I mean I think it's something like twenty to forty years. Uh, I had a discussion with that about, um, I think, with uh, Michael Chittister, and um, there's some question about whether or not, or no, excuse me, it was with Greg Millet. There's some question as to whether or not, because of the the time that the two darties, because there's Lipo Darty and then there's Filippo Darty, and that's where the sort of the misconnect or disconnect comes from, and what other uh, scholars have kind of looked at is they're saying either that's the same person or it's two different people altogether. Mm. Um, and so what this one scholar was arguing is that uh, I think there were two later sources that reference it being two different people and that Lipo Darty had come from Spain. And what he's arguing is that Filippo Darty had actually spent that that long of a time, almost like 40 years at the university teaching, uh, which is pretty wild. So, mm. yeah. All right, so let's uh, let's let's keep going through here. Um, I kind of drove us offline a little bit there with that. It's an interesting so, segue. It was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, given because you you recently earned um, a, a 
clear a certification you can clarify on this because I, I think I'm getting this wrong but a master's certification in fencing is that correct yeah I went through the um, Sonoma State University's fencing master's certificate program I think that was like 2019 yeah it was before COVID so 2018 or 2019 yeah that's awesome um, so so you're without a doubt a better fencer than both Stephen and I <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say that <laughs> um, so Given your extensive fencing background, um, uh, well, I mean, we've, we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but how do you vi view Vigiani as a source um, in terms of like a truly, strictly just a fencing source? Yeah, I mean, just as a fencing source, I think there, there has been some really good material on Vigiani written, especially in the way that he treats biomechanics, so like where you put your weight, um, some of those details around specifically turning your body, um, shifting weight, profiling that I think we don't really get from other other sources in that time period. So in that in that sense, I like Vigiani a lot as a fencing source. Um, however, I have to be honest and say most of my interest is in those kinds of larger, um, larger questions of knowledge and um, how fencing as a profession kind of gets cast and as um, um, something that is more admirable and that's more elevated. Um, so I think like those philosophical questions are more where I've really put a lot of my um, put a lot of my time because you know we have a lot of really talented people looking at book three of Vigiani. But I think that you not bringing book one and book two back and uniting those big questions into like this very targeted application is going to be enriching long term. Do you have any plans to translate book one and two? Oh, I have a translation. Um, I just haven't. I want to make it like a critical edition, it's, and so I need to like, it just needs a lot of work. It's one of those projects, it hasn't quite made it to my front burner yet. Mm. That's fantastic. We'll have to, yeah, we'll definitely look forward to that. To that. Yeah, it's really great. So from, uh, from a pedagogical perspective, um, how important do you think it is for practitioners of the Bolognese arts uh, to study their successors? And who among the 16th um, to 18th century rapier masters would you say uh, is quintessential reading for anyone looking to kind of expand the scope of their study? I think um, coming, coming, from, coming from that perspective, I might look first to Marcelli, who's like late 17th century, because he's somebody who really encompasses a lot of rapier practice, but he condenses it down to, uh, well, I wouldn't say condense, because <laughs> that's perfect. an interesting choice of words. He clarifies <laughs> it, he clarifies it, I think, in a way. So he's still, I mean, he's still very much um, a product of his own school, but I think he's somebody who does a lot of synthesis work. And you can also see him in conversation um, with all of these other fencing masters, like he doesn't really distinguish between somebody who published a book 10 years ago and somebody who published like, you know, 100 years ago. Like he's just, um, in the first section of his book, he's just talking to everyone. So I think he's a great um, connecting point for um, someone who's interested in looking at rapier, both because there's a lot of just conceptual clarity. Um, there's a lot of um, detailed description around modo, around the technique. And also because he himself is self-consciously um, inserting himself into this longer tradition in some ways that lets you transport what you know about one part of um, Italian fencing into like another part of Italian fencing. So I think that that synthetic approach can be really helpful as you're um, trying to transfer knowledge between two different areas. So yeah, I mean, I would I might start with him. Um, I think then depending on depending on your interest, you might 
go, you might um, go backwards a little bit um, and look at some of those masters who he is um, maybe condensing or riffing off, but um, that, that would be where I would start. That's awesome. So Marcelli. Whew, that's, he's a tough read. Is he? Yeah, he's it's a little bit, I think, like the waterboarding equivalent of a of a text. <laughs> <laughs> do you feel like the sections are too small, or like what do you? No, it's just more the. Um, well, I, I read a translation which was a very good, and I, I I'm convinced is an extremely faithful translation, and so it's kind of written in a style that's opposite to what we're used to in the Bolognese, which is like stand here, do this. He does this, do this, and then do that. It's very long-winded and uh, philosophical. Interesting. I think we're just a little closer to the Middle Ages in, in our Bolognese mm. study and just like, he's got a sword, you've got a sword, do something. <laughs> Wait for something to happen and then get him. <laughs> I think it's a, it's a, a artifact of technical communication that Marcelli is very interesting because I think that he's really refined how he uses headings and subheadings and how he divides the book into sections. Okay. So I think like organizationally, He's um, he's a very strong source. Cool. I'll have to take. I'll take another crack at him. Is there a good translation that you recommend? Yeah, I mean Chris Holtzman has one. Um, um, that's the one that I use when I don't feel like working through it in Italian. That can be good okay. and bad, right? Sometimes it slows you down so you're not skipping over details, but then sometimes you just need to kind of burn through parts. Yeah, I mean, if there's, if there's a translation available, a lot of times I like to start with the translation, and then when I get to something that seems weird or interesting, then yeah, I switch yeah. to the Italian so I can focus in on just that part. That seems like the best way to do all of this stuff, yeah. This all makes sense. This all, wait, that one doesn't make sense. I bet there's a, a boo-boo here <laughs> or something really weird. I'm sure about that. Yeah, there's something yeah. that doesn't quite fit with the, um, the ecosystem. Yeah, a, a missing footnote. Um, so what about modern fencing? Um you know, when it comes to like foil or saber, um, what lessons can people focused on historical martial arts take from modern fencing and its its conceptions to better understand the historical sources? Yeah, so I mean, I'm going to have to talk more about um, classical fencing as modern fencing. So fencing, fencing yeah. with modern weapons, because I think with um, FA 2.0, there's been a turn back towards a little bit more. Um, simplicity with a lot of training, um, broad strokes. I mean, obviously at a very competitive level, you're doing very, very complicated things. Um, but there's not as much of an emphasis on technique. So just like to bracket that there. But speaking of, say, stuff that is rooted in um, pre-electrification, but it's still using modern weapons. I think that's kind of the sweet spot there because this comes out of the Enlightenment period and the classical period where um, people are very interested in classifying things down to these very granular levels, which means that you have a lot of precision in how you can describe bodily movements and how you can um, get at things pedagogically. So if you're interested in teaching, it's a really nice place to start because there's an answer for literally any question. So where, where should my hand be? How far should my hand be rotated? How should I stand? Like, what do I do if my student um, you know, makes this mistake. Like there's like an answer for everything. So it's a pretty just pretty nice, nice. Um, archive. It's very comprehensive. Um, classical modern fencing, I think though, is, it's a really big, um, it's a really big umbrella turn. I think for specifically for 
the school that I'm from, so the um, Sonoma State School, which came out of the, uh, the San Jose State Fencing Masters program mm -hmm. that Gogler founded in 1979, we tend to focus on, I think, aggression and intent. So um, more so than say like um, grace or some other hallmarks of other sorts of um, classical approaches that you might see. Um, so yeah, that kind of enlightenment approach to categorizing, descri describing everything in exhaustive detail is very helpful if you're trying to learn how to um, teach. And then also it's just hugely, hugely fun because we ran like a foil workshop last weekend or last Friday. And we went through this mind melting lesson that Gogler wrote in like 1994. Um, and we get through to the end and you're doing this action. You're like, there's no way I can do this action. It's way too complicated. It's like phrases and phrases and phrases deep. And then the next action says, add to that X, Y, and Z. And then all of a sudden you can do the thing that was too hard to do before, but now you can't do X, Y, and Z, but that's okay. Hmm. But anyway, it's like, there's like a complexity there that's just hugely pleasurable for fencing um, and for, for training. So, I mean, if, if you, if you enjoy that, that kind of, um, thing it's hard to get from other um, weapon styles I think the foil is just you know so light and so small and you can do like these triple feints and you can do like this really precise targeting um, with it that I think you you don't really get a chance to do as much with some of the other heavier weapons the old triple feint that's <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah, that's actually I, well Paladini actually that's what he tells you you should do if you're ever in a in a serious fight you should do the the tre punta which i guess that is, just is a, double a ter feint. that is terrible advice <laughs> that's the worst <laughs> advice ever they're just going to like hit you with an arrest like no <laughs> don't do that yeah so he's uh, that's pretty much Manchelino's advice to any all faints. Run into them. Go right yeah. into Gordy de Facha. <laughs> <laughs> nice faint, bro. Boom. <laughs> Deal with that. Oh, <laughs> uh, got it. Yeah. Or if, yeah, that's just his answer to everything. It's just Gordy de Facha. Yeah, exactly. I think, like, going, going back to that question of like classical and historical fencing, one thing that is really nice is that we have an oral tradition that can go back um, a lot of generations and so there may be there's always like artifacts of your fencing and you don't know where it came from or exactly what the intent was and there are a lot of things that i wouldn't know except you know my maestro came over to me and was like put this part of your body here or you know you're you're breathing wrong or you know like <laughs> really <laughs> really just um things that don't get written down and i think mm -hmm. like with our tradition it's it's great because we have um we have the the lineage that goes back for a long time and then it goes back to people who were working with weapons that were heavier and we still like in our tradition we treat sabers like they're heavy so our movement is centered at the elbow um we do right. circular cuts from the elbow um we're really clearing um clearing a lot of room there and again i'm demonstrating a circular cut i realize on a podcast um but <laughs> <laughs> it looked good to me that's okay good yeah, to yeah. Me. yeah but yeah we're not we're not doing things like as much from the from the wrist right um, and we're also a very point forward saber system. So in some ways I think it's closer to what you all, what you all still do. So yeah, there, there's that kind of neat connection, the lineage, living history, the oral tradition that in many ways I think can connect us to some of the older weapons, um, a little bit more closely than some other, um, some other fencing systems. We're not really starting from scratch in the same way. Um, but at the same time, there's like this kind of exhaustive level of detail, which, you know, for me right now, my work most recently has been in um, curriculum development 
and how we can how do we how do you teach fencing better? Um, yeah. How do you teach historical fencing better? How do you develop um, lessons and students um, in this art? So that since that's where I I have been living for the last few years, um, that's one of the main things that I see from. I mean, I think like you don't need it clearly. Like if you're if you're more interested just in like the the fencing side of things or studying the historical texts, um, then maybe you would be better off just um, taking lessons in the specific weapons form that you want. But I think if you're interested in teaching specifically, it's really, really a valuable tool. Yeah, teaching's the hard part. Yeah. It it's is. a fun part too though. If you yeah. say so. <laughs> you, and then it's really annoying. <laughs> cool. Well speaking of teaching, uh, why don't you take the next question, Joshua? Uh sure. Um so uh, I think that for me in particular, uh, at least from, from my, I'm, I'm in the Southeast, so we, we share a sphere. So I get a lot of feedback from, um, and, you know, I get to see you once a year down in Surfo and, and around, and I, I see students' viewers um, and people who have, you guys, uh, you and David have, have kind of connected with. So um, I've come to believe that RASP is one of the most important events um, in HEMA or in Western martial arts, um, and I think that everybody should attend. Um, I personally haven't had the pleasure to go, um, but the stories that I've heard from uh, peers have been absolutely phenomenal. So tell us a little bit about what RASP is and um, what it, what its mission is. Yeah, thank you for saying that. It's kind of like, it's kind of my baby, so I appreciate that people are talking about it and people are, um, people are enjoying it. Um, so when David and Keith and I sat down and organized Surfo first a while ago now, several years ago, some years ago, one of the things we we're thinking about with Serpo was how do we bring together people from these different communities, like from the SCA, from um, HEMA, maybe from some like more modern fencers, but how do we bring them together um, to develop kind of a shared community and shared resources? That thinking is what we carried into some of our earlier, um, that David and I carried into some of our earlier RASP events. But what we've really been able to do with the events is focus also on a shared language so there's this great line in um, Edmund Spencer, who wrote The Fairy Queen, he's like a late 16th century English author. He, um, he says, um, he's talking about vernacular English as opposed to Latin, like writing literary things in, why you should write literary, literary things in English and not Latin. But he talks about developing a, a kingdom of our own language. And I just, I love that phrase. And I feel like with RASP, we've really been able to develop this hyper-specific, um, hyper just useful and applicable language and um, something that was I think less widely known in the historical fencing community but that has you know existed for a long time and we learned that language and then we've got it to share with other people and now we're all speaking that language and that means we can just do more complicated and interesting things together because we're using um, some of the same um, the same the same language and the same um, concepts so those two things, like bringing together people from different parts of the fencing community, and then also building on you know, building a kingdom of our own language, have just really been um, awesome. I think for me, with um, with RASP and its mission, I think over the last um, few years, so we're getting ready for RASP number six. Um, we've actually built up enough um, momentum with people who have been several times before. We're we're able to spend less time on terminology, and spend more time on pedagogy and um, pedagogical development. So we have some really just 
interesting conversations. People can come and share their research. And there's a lot of just support for other people who are, who are coaching um, or running schools at, um, across the country. And sometimes we have people come in um, internationally. This year we're having um, Francesco Loda and Silvia Tomasetti come in from That's Rome. Awesome. Yeah, I'm really excited to have them. So that'll be kind of interesting. So we're kind of our fencing cousins in a way. Um, so it'll be interesting to um, see how how the language of Italian fencing um, translates between, you know, Rome and Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. that's we'll great. We'll see how that works. So that's I heard awesome. a funny thing that the, um, maybe this is just uh, a made up story, but I heard that Italian fencing is less Italian than American Italian fencing is, that it tends to more resemble French and Italian styles and that the American style has tried to tease out more of what's pure Italian. Yeah, you know, I think it may depend. I think it may depend on the school, but I know um, when we were in Italy, David went up and visited um, Maestro Tron's school, and Maestro Tron is very Italian. So his okay. his system is very very Italian. But I know that he was talking with one of the students there who made that comment, like, oh, "Okay, well, your your saber looks more Italian than these other, you know, saber." Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So in that way, it's been really interesting, right? That there's um, this kind of um, thing that transcends language and culture it's um like these sort of like embodied remembering over generations and generations um where you can just recognize somebody who's speaking your fencing language and that's kind of exciting cool yeah that is really cool so i'd like to add one more question to the mix and this you had another one joshua uh I, that was no, I, yeah go ahead so hypothetically speaking let's say it's 1525 and you have been challenged to a duel and you take yourself to the dueling ground and there is a giant selection of weapons mm -hmm. and what weapon do you uh do you elect to be the weapons for the duel and what armor oh that's a really interesting question what are are the rules like first blood or is this like you know oh no, it's to the death the forget <laughs> first blood <laughs> this isn't a foil match oh, man. <laughs> this is a sword fight you know, my, my inclination would be, because I assume that I am a six-foot-tall man who weighs 200 pounds. Oh, no, no, this is you. This is you. No, 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 I'm saying, so my inclination, oh, yeah. when, I oh, fence, I fence, when I fence, oh, I fence yeah, yeah. somebody who is much taller, much bigger yeah. than I am. So I like to grab, like, a cutting weapon and, like, close distance as hard as I can and, like, Sweet. go with the grapples when really I shouldn't. Like, I, I shouldn't be doing that. But it's fun. <laughs> it's, really it's fun. so fun. Um, so, yeah, but if it's actually in a serious duel, I would probably take um, something longer and more point oriented and like stay as far away as i could and like run away and hit people in the hand hit them hit my opponent in the hands until <laughs> i could um close in so like know. a pole arm you think maybe not as yeah maybe not as long as that it'd be a little bit unwieldy um it's a good question it's a good question I, yeah, I, I I fought you with uh, sword and dagger, so I I think that you should go with sword. Yeah, and dagger. Yeah, <laughs> 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 All right, so your second is is suggesting that you take the sword and dagger. Yeah, I, honestly, I sometimes when I fight sword and dagger, like uh, at Queen's Gambit, which is another uh, sort of Piedmont event, um, you know they they have mixed Bolognese arms, so you can do sword and dagger oh, against cool. people who are doing sword and buckler. Yeah, um, and and so. Every time I do sword and dagger against somebody who's doing sword and buckler, I feel like I'm cheating. <laughs> I'm so bad at sword and buckler. That is like honestly the the main thing that keeps me from doing more of the Bolognese fencing because I just hate bucklers. I hate yeah. them. 
They, they're so awkward and they're so how heavy. I feel about you can't daggers. stab anyone with them and people get mad at you if you, <laughs> punch, you punch them. them. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I would take sword and dagger. That's what I'm, that's where I'm, I mean, that's where I do a lot of my competitive training right now. Cause as a short person, um, sword and dagger is a really nice weapons form for me. And David and I have been working on Marcelli's rapier and dagger, which has some very interesting timing patterns that um, can surprise people just long enough for my kind of, you know, slow and aging self to <laughs> to get in there and um, get a few hits in where I might not otherwise. That's awesome. So um, to wrap this up, we've talked about RASP, but um, let's talk about some of the books that you uh, have published as well. So I know, I don't know if we can still find Fundamentals of Italian Rapier. Um, yeah, but- so that's that's out of print. Our publisher died, so the rights returned to us. We're actually working on a second edition of that right now, awesome. and I'm we're thinking about maybe just publishing it, um, just publishing it ourselves, so we can have a little bit more creative control over it. Because it was nice working with the publisher with a small printing press, but <sighs> there's just so many more dependencies. Um, so we're working on a second edition for that now. So hopefully that'll be out in the next um, year or so. That's great, yeah. I know um, our rapier instructor at our school, um, Rory, that was the first book that he ever recommended to me to get. So, Oh, cool. Was, yeah, he said that it was the best book to learn rapier. Um, so the other That's one is awesome. Fencing Form and Cognition in Early Modern Stage, Artful Devices. What is that one about? Oh, yeah, that was um, my dissertation turned into a monograph. And so with, um, yeah, so I'm looking at basically how did Elizabethans um, transmit practical knowledge about time? Um, And one of the ways they do that, I'm arguing, is through through fencing. And I argue that we don't, these bad plot plays I mentioned earlier, um, don't really have bad plots. They're just pulling from a structure of combat that would have been probably a little bit more um, understandable to people who are living in that time period. They're, they have the skilled vision to um, actively interpret um, sequences. So for example, like the formal logic of Titus Andronicus, I argue is drawn from like a contratempo sort of strategy of projecting weakness to draw a, um, a counterattack that you're then prepared to counter, or um, as you like it, um, is really based on a conditional if and it talks about faints and fainting. Um, and the very last, you know, famous part is um, Touchstone talking about um, the degrees of the lie. Um, mm. So I look at all these different plays that have, you know, bad plots, and um, I think about how structurally and visually, you know, performed in embodied spaces, how um, they are drawing formally from um, fencing theory and fencing practice, because you know, like. In that time, like if you think about like Blackfriars, like you might have a fencing lesson going on on one floor and um, a play going on on another floor. So like literally the um, theater in England is taking over these communal spaces where people used to be watching, you know, bear baiting, they used to be watching fencing, right. they would take fencing lessons and they're turning those into places for um, fictional representations for the commercial theater, which right. is like a brand new thing. Right. So, like, literally, you have that happening in the building. Like, you know, let's rebuild this building that used to be for fencing. Now it's going to be for plays. We're going to kind of borrow some bricks and mortar from the building. We're going to borrow some techniques from um, from these um, fencing masters and from these fencing lessons. So I think there's a lot of um, interconnection there that I tried to draw attention to. 
That's right. I guess because before that there was theater, but it was predominantly amateur theater, right? I mean, yeah. So you'd have like itinerant theater. So people would travel around and they would go to different towns and perform. And a lot of times those were more connected to the church and to um, feast days. So you right. might, and it was also used like for instruction. So you might put on a play of like um, Noah and the Ark, but then the shipwrights guild would sponsor it so that they could like advertise their shipbuilding. Ah. Cool. So it's cool. like that's great. Different. I love yeah, that. It wasn't like the population center to support it. Neat. That's awesome. Cool. Well, Dory, thanks so much. Um, yeah, thank it was you. Great Dory. having you on. It was really yeah. Insightful. Thank you. Very educational. Chance to share my work and to um, hear what you guys are up to. So thanks for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you again. And that concludes another episode of Learte dell'Arme, the Bolognese podcast. I want to thank Dr. Dory Copelands again for coming on and sharing her wisdom with us. We look forward to having you all for the next episode of L'Arte de l'Arme, where we're going to have Maestro Wars Episode 1, featuring the background of the duel between Ugo Pepole and Guido Rangoni. Until then, stay saucy.